Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. Travel across oceans. Catch a glimpse of the tent belonging to a pair of citizen scientist newlyweds perched on a glacier. Get the real story on Andy Warhol's death in New York City. Andre Sneer Magnuson's On Time and Water is an epic journey across geographies and from exacerbation to optimism. A magic cow inspires him. He finds purpose in his extraordinary family, an Icelandic and well-adjusted version of the Royal Tannenbaums. He discovers hope in conversation with the Dalai Lama. Crocodiles show us the way to a stable planet. A memorial to a melted glacier written by Magnuson himself reminds us of the cost of getting lost. Like the author, On Time and Water is as gravely serious as it is charming and delightful. Magnuson nudges and pokes. He never demands or chastises. He has written a gracious, careful, and refreshingly welcoming invitation to recognize our misperceptions and interdependencies so that we might actively enlist in the fight against climate change. Whether you are far along or just starting out on your own journey, Magnuson is the perfect travel companion on our way to a more hospitable and vivacious planet. Thank you for joining me, Andre, and welcome to At Risk. Thank you very much. So, Andre, why are we as a species so terrible at comprehending the grave risks our planet is facing? That's a, that's a very good question. <laughs> so, it, it seems that, uh, and I was trying to understand that in my book on time and water, is why is it that we are so intelligent and, uh, you know, we make lots of great things, lots of mistakes, but basically I, I believe we are a, a good species. Why is it that, uh, you know, when scientists come up with something that is very thorough and understood uh, around, you know, at least 20 years ago, it was kind of a consensus among scientists that, you know, how CO2 affects the atmosphere and warms the planet. Why does that not instantly become policy? And and why is that not implemented into industry and plans? And and uh, so in my book, I'm trying to understand also how other ideas and how other paradigms, it can take uh, decades, even centuries, for an idea to settle in and become a new reality. So, And I compare this to when Iceland had this freak mini-revolution in the year 1809. Very shortly after the French Revolution, uh, a man came and gave us freedom. But the problem was that we didn't understand the words. We didn't uh, understand freedom, liberty, democracy, constitution, all these, all these words that uh, came with this person that uh, he locked in the local Danish authorities and, and he said, Congratulations, Icelanders, you're free. But but we had never asked for freedom and the French Revolution had not been translated to Icelandic. So so it wasn't until uh, after 100 years of struggles that we eventually became independent. 
and the people that actually understood what he was saying, they were born around 1809. So I'm comparing this to uh, terms like ocean acidification, a term that was created like 2003, and uh, and is actually the biggest word in the world, but culturally we don't seem to understand it yet. And so who can help us with that understanding? Is it the role of artists or who? Uh, understanding comes, I think, from almost all aspects of... Uh, of our societies, it, it, it you know, like uh, like human rights. I can talk to you, and we can talk together about human rights. Uh, it's not like we let we we believe that's up to social scientists, you know, to talk about human rights, or or we can talk about women's rights or feminism. But it's not like we feel we don't have permission to talk about it because uh, that should be up to uh, uh, feminist theory. In, in the university, but it seems like we were have been insecure regarding issues like global warming. I didn't feel I had permission to write a book about it because I felt like that was up to scientists. You know, they they should do their studies, they should present their studies, and uh, they should do the graphs. But then I I met some scientists and they told me that they have their scientific discipline. They they can talk about their findings in a special way and and it needs to be under this discipline but uh, they said people don't really understand graphs they don't understand uh, findings like their their scientific papers but people understand stories and they said take my papers and put it into a story and and that was like an enlightening moment for me because I I'm uh, raised by a a family of doctors and nurses, and they would always frown upon somebody that was not with a medical background writing about health and, and stuff that they had no idea of, uh, no, no idea what they were talking about. So I felt kind of uh, afraid of stepping into people's uh, ball uh, playground. But, uh, but these scientists, they had become uh, increasingly kind of... Uh, irritated that that they were not reaching people so 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 it was uh, the urge of some scientists glacial scientists climate scientists that uh, they told me you know people understand stories tell the story and we need those stories too right when we think about the solutions to climate change not just understanding the problem yeah, and I, I think it's also very much in the language. So, so you know, the word climate change. It, it's. Uh, it, I was telling people, I was writing about climate change, and I could see how their eyes glazed. <laughs> but, but, but uh, and they were like, "Oh no, he's going to tell me something boring." But then I, I reframed it, and I said, "People asked, what are you writing about?" And I said, "I'm writing about time and water." And they were like, "Wow, interesting. <laughs> what do you mean?" And then I would explain what I was talking about, which was basically explaining climate change without saying the word. And and it seems like we always have to rephrase, refresh, and uh, retell things. Uh, so just like democracy had to be, you know, retold uh, a thousand times for a hundred years until until we reached democracy. But the problem with climate change is we don't have a hundred years to understand it. We have to. Uh, we should have understood it 30 years ago. Yes, you write beautifully how 
it, it's not just climate change that, that that we have difficulties wrapping our heads around, but but time itself and its passage is it's a real challenge for us uh, as humans to understand that it's not static. Yeah, the uh, the time aspect is something that I felt. Uh uh, equally important, or, or maybe most important, in writing uh, writing the book, because all the science is, of course, pointing to the future, and it's pointing at events that might be happening or tipping points. In the year two thousand one hundred, we see graphs of glacial melt, uh, where where many of the major Icelandic glaciers are gone. In the year two thousand one hundred twenty, and uh, and that's one of the cultural issues. If you if we go back again to your first question, you know, why can't humans grasp this is, is uh, we're kind of accustomed probably to react to uh, urgent situations, but, you know, we could prepare for a, you know, we could prepare ourselves for a winter and, uh, and to live through a winter. So, but maybe not two winters or, or three winters. And it seems like when we have a time scale of something happening in 2080, we just, uh, brush it off it doesn't touch us and and then culturally that's all up to hunger games and blade runner to kind of write about that time so i wanted to create intimacy out of dates like 2080 2100 even 2160 with uh, just by doing very simple calculations because uh, and i used my grandmother actually to to help me with that so uh, so my grandmother, she does a calculation with my daughter. And my grandmother, she is born in the year 1924. And uh, she's, uh, that means she's uh, 97 this year. And uh, she did this calculation with my uh, 12-year-old daughter. And uh, so she was calculating, when is someone still alive that you will love? That is, when will somebody remember my daughter? In what year? So if my daughter becomes 90 in the year uh, 2098, for example, uh, she might have a favorite uh, grandchild that would be born, you know, maybe around 2070. And, uh, and that person will still be talking about her as her major influence in her life in the year 2160 if that person becomes 90. So, so my daughter can touch she's influenced by 1924 which is uh, you know and and the life of somebody born 1924 and she will probably influence somebody greatly that is still out there in the year 2160 and it's not even a it's not even a, a far-fetched uh, calculation or a, or a or a rare calculation it's just very likely that this will be the reality so 2160 is 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 like 140 years after Blade Runner. So so it's uh, and it's and we don't in our city planning in our in our politics in our industries in our daily life. It seems like we're not thinking in this. Uh, you could call it uh, like Roman Kratznik uh, philosopher talks about uh, cathedral thinking. That is. Uh, like people in the Middle Ages, they used to plan a cathedral building maybe three, four hundred years into the future. But we're very much into quarterly annual earnings and uh, four years of uh, government, governments. 
but uh, you know, two thousand one hundred sixty assists—it's not even in our. It's it's just so far. It just seems to be absurd to think in those terms. Well, I loved that little puzzle, and I I played it with my daughter and uh, tried to frame it as so. When you're shopping, you know, try and think ahead to you know that grandchild you're going to have and whether that article of clothing will still be on the planet even if you're not wearing it any longer yeah and, and probably and and even when I, I took my dog for a walk and and we were putting the poop in a bag i was discussing with my daughter okay maybe you know how long will this bag last you know is is this is this a gift to the future if we put the poop in a bag and uh, so uh, so will somebody find this and 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 every single day you know when we put something into the atmosphere when we add co2 to the atmosphere we are putting more pressure on future generations and uh, we're at least not making their life easier and that's kind of the unbearable dilemma that we're in i think i think every generation you know that was building highways and infrastructures and and, and the, the modern life that we live in I think they sincerely believed they were making the future better for their descendants. We're in this unbearable situation where kind of scientifically it's proven that we are not doing it. We are undermining the future while we haven't kind of gained some kind of control over the amount of CO2 that goes into the atmosphere. So so that can lead to cynicism and, and uh, all sorts of uh, kind of bad spirits in politics and and uh, and uh, what do you call it uh, uh, apathy but uh, but i think that uh, that if we find kind of uh, and and when we start kind of really moving into the right direction that we can find higher meanings in so many aspects of of uh, work and industry where people are actually feeling that they are turning things to the better. And you felt that personal connection. That that's also why you wrote this book. You you write in it that that that, that you felt compelled to write it. What what compelled you? Well, it's of course I just felt that that if this is, you know, this is the biggest challenge that humans are collectively faced. And I thought, if I'm a writer here and now, and I have talent and, and choice to write what I want to write, you know, of course I could just write another crime novel or something. But I felt uh, that I had some kind of obligations of of uh, writing about this issue. And uh, suddenly it was like uh, everything came together. There were stories that I wanted to talk about, you know, like family mythology, my grandparents' journeys on the glaciers. And uh, and uh, because they were founding partners of the Icelandic Glacial Research Society, so I was in a very good situation of bringing glaciers closer to the heart. While they are, you know, most 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 of the time, it's difficult to have sympathy with with glaciers or, or love for them. And then uh, and then I was invited to interview the Dalai Lama, and I'm not a journalist, so this was actually one of the first interviews that I took in my life. So, talking about uh, starting with a high, with high stakes in, in interviews. So I took it very seriously, and I was like, "What can I ask a person that has reincarnated fourteen times?" And uh, 
and I was thinking and I was browsing mythology and and then uh, I found this strange comparison between Nordic mythology, where the world started as a frozen cow, sounds like a whispering game that went wrong. <laughs> so once upon a time there was nothing, and then came the frozen cow. And, and from the udders of this cow came the four rivers that nourished the world. And uh, and then this has always started kind of, I have always questioned, you know, what, what is this? But then uh, when I was preparing the interview, I saw that, that uh, the origin of the Ganga is a glacier called Gomuk, and that means the mouth of the cow. And uh, Mount Kailas is the most holy place in the world, and from there come and from the glaciers around that area come the four major rivers of Asia. So you could say that suddenly I understood that, uh, of course, glaciers as a source of life, glaciers as uh, the foundation of life for a billion people in Asia, was something that was not discussed and rarely talked about. And uh, I felt, okay, I can take my grandmother, the Dalai Lama mythology, and I can try to pack that into some kind of a story about ice as a source of life and how this ice is actually diminishing because of us in the next 100 years and, and what effect that might have. So uh, I said that I got a revelation from the holy cow to write this book. <laughs> <laughs> the frozen holy cow. Uh, uh, maybe listeners will stop taking me seriously now, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it's uh, it's about finding poetic metaphors and connection and connection. Yeah, that that, that that's what I really took from it. You know, um, you know, as Canadians, we're 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 a snowy people as well. I certainly felt felt the connection, and and I really appreciated how the book. You know, it, it it's it's an emotional journey as well. You know, um, it, you know when you read. The, the the science and and the data and the statistics uh, it, it can be very overwhelming and that and that can lead to paralysis but i i was really quite moved uh, by your conversations with the dalai lama and and i think i think that conversation in addition to seeing the connections um with uh, with, with the magic cow but i could also j- just see the, the the tone in the writing that 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 you really walked away with with an optimism that that I'm not sure you had before your conversations with him yes uh, that's true I, I was uh, you know like the Dalai Lama he's he's uh, in exile and and uh, his nation of the people of Tibet have been going through incredible uh, difficulties and uh, and uh, and pain and uh, you would believe that he might be uh, angry or pessimistic, but I was I was very taken by how he doesn't speak badly about the people that have oppressed his nation, his kind of long-term optimism, but also how he also prioritizes uh, the problems because uh, because of course free Tibet is very important, but if we do not get our heads around global warming and start, uh, you know, fixing that issue. Then, then a free Tibet within a world collapsing uh, is not worth anything. Or, or you know, that struggle, that struggle depends on us finding a solution for global warming. So, 
So then uh, both uh, could see that, you know, he could understand that this issue is kind of the basic fundamental issue of all other issues that we won't accomplish them unless we, we, we find a solution to this. But also his uh, lightheartedness that he doesn't really lose his sense of humor and it's, it's not contradictory to, to be silly in one second then, but deeply serious and even philosophical or spiritual in the next one. So, so that aspect uh, also was like talking to the scientists. I felt I had permission. You know, if, if he can laugh uh, within his situation, then, then I can also allow myself sometimes to be naturally silly if I want to. Also because the issue is so overwhelming that uh, you just need to clean it out with laughter or, uh, or, or some kind of uh, carthasis uh, before you go to the next stage. I've worked in healthcare um, for almost two decades now, and some of the wisest words I ever received were from uh, a nurse who at the time was an executive, but when she was actively uh, nursing at the bedside, she, um, uh, she was caring for people with cancer. And uh, we, we were chatting about something and I made a joke and I laughed and then, and then I immediately apologized because I was like, you know, sorry, I, I know this isn't, you know, a, la- a laughing matter. And, and she said, no, 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 that's okay. Because what I learned from being an ICU nurse caring for cancer patients is that if you are down in the hole of a grave, how can you lift someone out? Yeah, exactly. And also, also like in this regard, uh, and and regarding like uh, if you paralyze or not, because my family is, has lots of medical people, and I, I I spoke to them quite a lot about you know this issue of climate change, and 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 they were saying it was like a doctor that was tiptoeing around a patient, you know, not trying not to tell him that he actually had cancer or he actually had. Uh, something serious, and was just pretending that everything was okay. Uh, and 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 they told me also that uh, people, in fact, do not get paralyzed most of the time. Of course, some people do, but but bad news: people mostly meet it with uh, with strength and with resilience, and with uh, often with fighting power, often often with a sense of humor. And uh, and and uh, and determination, and then uh, also sometimes life-changingly in their own kind of perspective and identity, and uh, and also like uh, like because it, lots of scientists that I know, climate scientists, they were kind of all tiptoeing, trying, you know, more downplaying their findings than uh, than the other in this strange kind of idea that that they would paralyze people if they would tell the truth. But it's and it's also like uh, my family has been working as paramedics sometimes in in uh, in uh, in uh, ambulances and and it's not like if they hear there's an accident somewhere that that they become paralyzed and they say oh no what do I do they they just buckle their seatbelts and 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 handle the situation professionally and that's what we all should do collectively we should just you know look at the problem. And start handling it professionally, but until now we're not handling it professionally. We're just kind of uh, 
tiptoeing around industries. And it's not until we see the corona crisis where we actually see kind of firm hands on situations where uh, we're just... Uh, uh, Industries are even just stopped or, or changed overnight uh, by uh, because of a, a common good or a, or a or a higher need, and and this is something that we haven't really seen with climate change. We, we're just supposed to change really gradually. It's not supposed to uh, disrupt anything. We're not going to have any uh, light speed like we had in the vaccine. We're not going to have like a vac- light speed operations on transport or energy or or food or anything we're just gonna uh, and i think in hindsight our children will see us as rather lazy and and for for not for not taking this challenge and and really working up to it there's so many things i want to ask you but i I'm, i'm going to focus in on um going back to the water part of on time and water and just thinking about our responsibilities as, you know, the human race on the planet today. Uh, You wrote a memorial to a glacier. How did you settle on um, the the, the words and and impact you wanted to create with that memorial? I had no uh, kind of idea that it would have any impact. That is... uh, it was more like a quirky, quirky uh, thing that I was asked to do by uh, anthropologists from Texas, Dominic and, and Simone Boyer, and uh, and they uh, they had been uh, kind of doing research on the Anthropocene, and and they uh, they noticed that Iceland had lost its first glacier to climate change, and uh, asked, "Would you write a memorial for it?" On, on a copper shield. And I was thinking, okay, this is something that very few people will see, maybe uh, 10 people a year. and But somebody somebody will see this after two, three, four hundred years. And even a copper plate will probably last longer than the stone itself it will be placed on. So suddenly you started this long-term thinking. I'm, I'm talking maybe to somebody in three, four, five hundred years, even, or at least 300 years. And then I was thinking, trying to work out what kind of text do I write? What what kind of, uh, should I be overly poetic? Should I write an old medieval metric form? And then the name of the glacier is very special because it's OK. okay. And so, of course, OK is not OK anymore, which is a very ironic name for a glacier uh, that is dead. And... uh, and then uh, ok also means yoke, that is uh, the archaic word for the beam that carries water. So, uh, so, uh, so this glacier used to carry the water, that is keep it away from the oceans. But now that ocean, water has gone to the oceans. Uh, and ok also means yoke, that is yoke also means oppression, that is you are under the yoke of a dictatorship. So, so ok has become the yoke of future generations. So I was I was ranting about that for a whole summer until I just thought, okay, I'll, I'll just do it super simple. I'm just, uh, just going to write, this monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done, but only you know if we did it. August 2019, 
415 ppm of CO2. So, uh, yeah, so in the end, I just decided to write it just very direct. That is, uh, to our contemporaries, but also kind of to the people in 300 years that might stumble upon this rock on the mountain. You make such an important point. I mean, you make so many, but but this one just really struck me as, you know, we need to write it in the skies, that when glaciers melt, they will create an initial false prosperity. Can you explain to the listeners what, 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 what you mean by the false prosperity of a melting glacier? Yes, that's that's kind of the devious situation that you can see uh, in uh, in some places in India or or in Asia where where people are are living off the melting water of glaciers. So so while the glacier is melting, it might the melting rate might increase ten percent a year or something. Then people will have more water and and access to more water temporarily while the glacier is is melting, just like. Uh, when you're emptying your bank account or something, uh, not not saving for the future, so so uh, so you have this false pr- prosperity while the glacier is melting, and you can maybe get more crop, you can uh, uh, have more water for your in- industries. But then, when the glacier is gone, or it has reached this uh, tipping point of uh, of collapse, then suddenly we uh, you will have much less water, and even much less water than than before the glaciers started melting. And these glaciers, for example, in Asia, they are perfect systems. They because the the monsoon, the, the wet season is so intense, uh, where you have an overabundance of water and, and it's actually damaging. So the the glacier is a perfect system. It keeps the water uh, when you don't need it and, and it's abundant. And then it gives it to you when you really need it. So even though glacial water might only be 10% of the total water in some regions, it might be 100% during the most important time, when, when it's about making or breaking for your groundwater or your crop. So, so now when we are experiencing this, we could have this false prosperity, and then after that we have uh, a very devastating situation. So, uh, so that's, a, that's a very... Uh, could say like a very uh, evil dilemma, or a, or a, like a, Timothy Morton talks about. A, it's a wicked problem. It's a, and this is something we have to prepare for. And the, and the problem is that when you have prosperity, then you should no, use that time to to uh, prepare for what comes after that. But uh, people tend to get lost in that situation of of, uh, of not worrying what comes next. You mentioned COVID-19 and climate change and COVID-19, you know, they really share um, a, a common thread in that they're both problems that seem to exploit our weaknesses as humans, our ability to perceive risk, to be able to uh, as you say, take advantage of prosperous times to invest when things are more resource challenged. Um, had, in terms of your observations of the pandemic, does the world's response to that threat give you hope or pause? 
when it comes to thinking about our response to climate change? I think it gives me hope, actually. I think that uh, we will probably underestimate the effect of corona in the short term, but uh, uh, no, overestimate to the short term, but underestimate to the long term. Because, uh, and it was a very good example. I remember when Italy was burning, like, you know, it was a terrible situation. Even while that was happening, and it was so easy to translate Italy to London or or, uh, or New York. Still, it was not like the politicians and the policymakers and the infrastructure could could translate that. You know, say, okay, in two weeks, Italy it will hit home. Uh, so eventually, that did happen, and uh, and but they 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 and everybody was kind of unprepared, and that was like a small microcosmos. If if you can't translate two weeks of events to your own your own population, how how can you how can you react to a a fifty year arch like we talk about in climate change? But the good thing I think is, if you want to say good, uh, is that. I think we just got the big, biggest metaphor that humanity has collectively received, like in terms of reference to situations. Uh, when we're talking about climate change, we have been talking about uh, the Manhattan Project. We've been talking about the moon landing, the, the Marshall Plan, uh, the, the New Deal or the Green New Deal. We can refer to past economic realities or, or, or initiatives that uh, states and others, uh, governments would, 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 when they were trying to reach maybe a big goal. Uh, now every single child on the planet has gone through the strangest situation that, uh, that you could imagine. Being uh, locked from school, not allowed to hug your grandmother, all theaters, everything closed, just this really, really strange situation that uh, I think we underestimate because I never imagined that the world could stop. I never imagined that you could, that a government could tell you to close a store or close a cinema or, or, or change anything. It was all up to the market. And we were in this kind of growing neoliberal, we we're just supposed to choose green and then eventually maybe the world might become green. When the hole was in the ozone layer, it was not like up to conscious consumers to have ozone-friendly hairspray, while the other were just uh, recklessly going on with uh, with ozone-damaging hair uh, hairstyle. It was just they just took it off the market. But we haven't seen this uh, these kind of collective responses to fossil fuels and oil, where it's just basically almost forced out of the market. And I think the generation that both had the climate strikes, uh, that went through the climate strikes and then had Corona, uh, when when they and and they have all these climate words since they were born, the, the climate words did not come into my reality, and you know, ocean acidification did not reach my reality until I was uh, I was thirty something. But this generation that is raised with all these issues and and has been uh, has gone through the climate strikes. This generation will ask, "Okay, we need five percent of GDP to for total energy transition." 
what 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 sacrifice was made for Corona, and they will see okay, that was like ten percent of the GDP, and and they will see that what needs to be done for uh, for climate change is is a light speed operation in in innovation and uh, lots of social changes and uh, and changes in industry and uh, consumerism. But they will ask, okay, we need five percent of GDP, but we can still hug grandmothers, we can still party, we can still go to school, we can still go to the cinema, we can hug, we can have mosh pits in, in the concerts. So, so you know, I think they will see things that we saw as impossible because the economy was, was such a god. I think they will see it differently. And they are so connected to the future because a university student today reaches the age of my grandmother in the year 2097. Uh, a, a child born today reaches the age of Biden in the year 2097. So, so they are, will. I was raised with the year 2000 as a utopia, like a like a far distant future. But now we are 20 years past this future, and, and we haven't really updated to the next future goal. And I think this generation will be very connected to the year 2100 and and be very determined that they will not live in a messed up world by that time. You have this beautiful story you tell about your uncle John and his, your paternal uncle John and, and his impact in the world. And uh, I'm going to ask you to just to briefly retell that story because I think it really brings together the role of purpose as individuals. It's it's a collective problem and it requires collective action, climate change, fighting climate change. But the role of the individual and their purpose is still vital. And I loved how you brought that to life through through your through the story of your maternal uncle John. Yes, thank you. It was uh it was a big inf- inspiration for uh you know, it, you can imagine having an uncle that is a crocodile specialist. You know, that's like uh, working in the Amazon, and he had a boa constrictor in his bedroom when he was a teenager, and uh, raised in New Jersey, uh, son of my uh, my my grandfather in America. So, so he had invited me to uh, to come for a uh, help him volunteer on 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 the primal research of of anacondas in, in Venezuela and then help him catch caiman crocodiles in uh, in the Amazon. And he devoted his life to making, uh, working with local communities on crocodile preservation. And somebody asked when I, I started writing this into the story, okay, you're writing about Dalai Lama, glaciers, your grandmother, and you're putting crocodiles into it. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, yes, it's it's the key to the story. It's it's the key to connecting everything. So uh, so he was working worldwide, and he made uh, this action plan when he was a PhD student of uh, kind of a global action plan of crocodile conservation. And he got this uh, calling when he was a child, maybe only ten years old or something. He saw a, a documentary about crocodiles being. Uh, uh, on the brink of extinction in so many places, and uh, and he he decided then, and he, he loved frogs and turtles and snakes and all these uh, reptiles, and and he he uh, got this calling to save crocodiles, and uh, and that's what he eventually 
he was very modest and he was not like these typical crocodile macho types. He always, when I was asking him about the danger of crocodiles, he would tell me that the traffic in Venezuela was much more, <laughs> was much worse than crocodiles and, uh, and, uh, and never kind of was bragging about or boasting his, uh, crocodile wrestling skills. But he would talk about them uh, almost in a, in a, you could say, a, not feminine way, but like a, in a, in a uh, sensual way. Like a, talk about crocodiles as good mothers, and and they were closer to birds in uh, in tending for their offspring, and uh, and he needed to work very modestly because he did not have, make these internet campaigns like Save the Crocodiles and, and petitions against governments. He just had to listen to people, speak to people, and convince them that it might be uh, good for the long-term benefit to have a crocodile in their marsh uh, because it would, uh, it would help replenish the fish and uh, prevent uh, diseases. So he would help maybe poor farmers to understand better that uh, they were and are a vital part of the ecosystem. And now even on the bigger picture that crocodiles that live in wetland areas, protecting crocodiles is also uh, protecting carbon sinks. But eventually he sadly died from malaria in India in the year 2010. And uh, and at the time I didn't know how big or respected he was, but uh, his obituary was in both the New York Times and The Economist. and. Uh, and he, uh, and then uh, in the year 2013, a, a great skeleton was found in uh, in Kenya, very close to the first steps of humans or the first remains of of human beings, like a five million year old skeleton of the biggest crocodile species that has roamed the planet. And this crocodile species needed a name, and it got the name Crocodilus Thorbjarnarsoni, or uh, which is the last name of my uncle. So. So he reincarnated as a prehistoric crocodile and not just any crocodile, but the biggest crocodile that has lived on Earth. So I thought that was, uh, despite his tragic ending, it was in a way uh, probably close to a childhood dream of that 10-year-old to, uh, to reincarnate as a prehistoric crocodile after saving species actually from extinction. And, and that's what... What is remarkable that a, a single human or a, or a group of humans can affect a 50 million or a 150-year evolution of a species if it uh, dies or not. And, and that's kind of the power of humans now is uh, so much of nature, so many species are, it's in our power to protect them or, or not. You're an Icelander, but this book could have easily been written to Canada. Um, you know, we have our glaciers, we have three ocean coasts, our Great Lakes, and a large oil and gas industry. What do you want to say to Canadians? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's all in the book, but Canadians, you know, Canadians are probably the biggest water resourceful place on the planet. Canadians uh, have 
maybe tragically become addicted to the oil sands, and uh, and that is something that I'm also writing about is uh, is uh, how we collectively have to get out of these uh, these problems, like uh, like. Uh, yeah, when we start benefiting from fossil fuel and, and coal, and but Canada is in a, in a very good situation of of uh, with all this land and all these possibilities of of, uh, of powering itself with uh, with clean energy. Uh, Canada is, of course, a very important place internationally. The, the voice of Canada is 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 respected and listened to, and uh, and therefore I thought it was kind of tragic in a way that both Norway and Canada <laughs> became oil nations in the last decades because uh, they have been kind of beacons of democracy, both of these uh, these nations, and uh, almost like a small uh, devilish test on us. Uh, but uh, the book is, is not still demanding anything from people. I, I, I decided I just wanted to, rather than demand things from people, I just wanted to give them the opportunity to understand it themselves, uh, what the situation was, give people maybe metaphor, language, uh, uh, data, and uh, and believing that when you have that, you will eventually want to do the right thing and you will you will not be forced to do it. And, and when we have the paradigm shift, it's not because we are missing, it's not like, you know, we have had all sorts of revolutions. It's not like we're missing not having a king. Or, or when a friend becomes vegan, it's not like he's craving for a hamburger. He just doesn't want hamburgers. So I think when the understanding is reached, then uh, the paradigm shift is is more effortless than, than maybe we imagined before we go through it. It's not like we miss not not uh, smoking in the child's room or something. It's just... We just understand something and we don't want the bad habits anymore. Well, Andre, thank you so much for On Time and Water. It is a rich and inviting story, uh, both about your family as well as the challenges we need to meet. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. 